Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Pay. That's a great thing about living in the woods is because it, it satisfies one of my basic um, definitions of freedom, which is peeing in your front or backyard. No problem. Nobody around to look at you. And yeah, there you go. Then again, you know, under certain circumstances, when I lived in the city, I would do the same thing. So maybe that's certain freedom too. Well, other than a little town, all my neighbors have definitely seen me going off the back porch plenty of times. Well, Humboldt's that kind of place, you know? Oh, no one cares. As long as they don't see your ween, they don't care. <laughs> Well, I'm going back to the spot again with Danny where I uh, saw that huge squatch on Thurman didn't record, though. The, there's that glitch in that FLIR. Right, in Louisiana? Yeah, I'm going there after the Texas conference, so I'm pretty stoked about that. So you're going to fly directly to there or drive there or something? Um, it's only, From where the conference is in Texas, where we're going, it's only like 40 minutes away or 35 minutes. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah, Jefferson is far east Texas, of course, so uh, Louisiana is right over the border. Yeah, it's right in that tri-state zone, Texarkana. Nice, nice. But you know who else uh, offered to come on, but I think it was too short a notice, was Paul Graves. Oh, Paul. Yeah, I I saw Paul briefly at the uh, Oregon Bigfoot Festival. You were there too, of course, but uh, that is such a busy event. I didn't really have any time to sit down with Paul and catch up with him. Well, we had dinner with him and his wife, Becky, remember? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but but even then, you know, it's like a loud pub. There's lots of people at the table. Like it's just not a it's just not a good opportunity. I'm not good in like big social situations. You know, if there's more than like three or four people there, I might as well be in a crowd of fifty because I don't get a chance to talk to anybody. Exactly. I, I was just, yeah, I got to talk to him some then, but not really sit down like we could on like, like doing one of these interviews, we could really because he said he's got uh, good results. Lately. He's got some new evidence. And um, Dave Ellis has been impressed with some of his vocalizations. And he's got that snow track line. And uh, he's, he's gotten some good good results. Yeah, lots been going on. Lots been going on with him. But, you know, I, I guess I'm just used to talking to Paul, like, around a campfire. Right. Like right. the good old days, I suppose. Yeah, he is a campfire kind of guy. He's also... Written, I think, the second best Bigfoot song of all time, Jim Henry. <laughs> Jim He's Henry got, is a great song, but number three has got to be Bigfoots and Butterflies. That is in the top ten. I, number three, I think I'd go Yams, Roger, and Bob. Number one would be Buddy Knox. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. Yeah, and then, of course, any number, uh, I think any any of the songs in the top five are interchangeable for any of the other numbers in the top five. Oh yeah, depending, on, some, depending yes. on my mood. 
Yeah, because uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. Because I know a lot of people like Roger and Bob's their favorite with uh, Yams, and Yams has got a few top tens for sure. I mean, he's the most prolific Bigfoot songwriter for sure. Well, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I would say prolific because th- that just means constantly producing, right? Um, t- like Tom's one of those guys that uh, he produced like the perfect rock album and he doesn't need to do more. Right. Because like the, the songs that he has are not only good enough, but like they're, they're just timeless classics. Gosh darn it. They're good enough. They're smart enough. And, uh, <laughs> and everybody to... likes them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Tom. I, I I spoke to Tom this past week. Actually, uh, he's uh, he gave me one of his photographs of the Skookum cast to use in the museum. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, very good. It's good to have friends with uh, an active trigger finger on their camera. What a pain in the ass I was with that camera. At least we got some good out of it. Because man, he'd always be trying to get you to pose and stop and take pictures nonstop. And then he had to look just right, or everyone would have to sit there for ten minutes while he. Snapped him over and over so he got just the right angle where he thought he looked great. Yeah, it sucks in the moment, but um, you know, a year and a half later, or five years later, or even ten, looking back, you go, God, I'm really happy Tom was doing that and taking all those pictures, even though it was kind of annoying at the time. I mean, I was glad he was taking pictures. I just, I just didn't like having to take the same pictures over and over and over until he looked perfect. Oh, see, I didn't want to have to stop whatever we were doing to take a picture. Oh, that. I mean, once we stopped, I'd be like, all right, take the damn picture. <laughs> then he'd, like, oh, he'd look at it, he'd the classic. He'd lift his glasses up and squint at it and go, I don't like how I look, and make us all get back in the pose. And <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yams. Yamalama ding dong. Yeah, that guy's the best. Love that guy. When I fly out to Tennessee this uh, tomorrow, I'm going to leave my truck at Yams as he's going to drive me to the airport. Oh, wow. You got you to drive all the way down there, huh? Yeah, and dude, you know what? Um, as soon as we get off the phone with you, I'm going to jam to the gas station because I guess there's been lines around the block to all the gas stations because it could be five days with no fuel pumping. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah so I got to fill up my truck because it's supposed to shut down the whole north of San Francisco all the way to the Oregon border. It's supposed to be shut. And I, I don't have enough fuel to get down to the city. So I'm going to try to get some fuel tonight and then also grab my generator out of the storage unit and Fill up a couple of five-gallon cans so the girly has uh, power and all that while I'm gone. Yeah, that's tough living up there, man, on the um, Humboldt Coast. I know it's in California and everything, but I don't think people realize how isolated and out of the way y'all are out there. We're the most isolated community in the lower 48. On the West Coast, the only thing I can think about that even rivals it is, you know, Forks and that area, you know, the little communities around there. They could be at Seattle like in four hours, you know, or or less. Yeah. Well, how long does it take you to get to like I don't know Sacramento or Redding or something? Um, Redding is three hours if there's no but, nothing yeah, wrong. Precar- precarious road though. Like the road to Redding is not easy. It's a two ninety nine. Oh, it was closed for like nine months two years ago, and then it was closed <laughs> for a year before. I mean, it, it gets closed all the time. Yeah, we get shut down. The one hundred one. They put in some bypasses. They're doing a lot of work, but that would shut down for a long time. Sometimes we used to have to go all the way up, drive up into Oregon, drive to Grants Pass, then drive all the way back down to the to the Bay Area if you wanted to like catch a flight or something. It was a pain in the butt. I mean, it's it's pretty bad, but 
Yeah, they say we have a full island economy here. Yeah, yeah, you pretty much do. But yeah, it's, it's worth it. Though. And uh, what people don't realize too is, well, weather nerds would, but the jet stream slams ashore like right here, North Humboldt, north of the Cape Mendocino. That's the most common place that it comes ashore. So it, we get blasted here all the time. Well, hence that, uh, you know, pineapple express or whatever y'all call it there, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is a blessing. Yeah, I'm trying to think what else. What did I, what did I hear when I was out about? Well, I had some stuff going on. Remember, remember piano player Nate? Yeah. I uh, performed the wedding for he and his now wife this past weekend. So I got to do that. That was kind of cool. Two of my best friends got married and they met through me and back in Long Beach and, you know, they just got hitched and I got to perform the ceremony, which is kind of cool. Dusting off my, uh, my, my wedding chops a little bit because cool. that's one of, yeah, totally cool. And we went up to Whidbey Island and poked around there and saw some, you know, we had this awesome beach house and saw some whales and, you know, sea lions or whatever they were. I couldn't tell what kind, if they were California or Stellars or whatever, but yeah, sea lions nonetheless. Yeah, it was just beautiful, great, epic weekend. And that, like I said, I got to you know dust off my my uh, my merit my my wedding chops because I'm going to be offering that service at the Bigfoot Museum. If somebody you know, some one of the kids in Portland or whoever, whatever weirdo wants me to marry them, wants to come into the shop um, and get married in front of our Bigfoot statue, they're welcome to do so. I'm a little bit better at it now. I got that on my webpage coming up um, that I've been working on for eight years. This is going to be great. Wedding service. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Universal Life Church, right? I'm actually a bishop. Are you? Yeah. No kidding. I'd like to be a chess family. piece. I got a, I got a flock. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah, it cost 175 bucks, and I had to have three ordained ministers underneath me, like, uh, say that I was going to be their bishop. A small price to pay. Exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've married like shoots like twenty people so far, twenty couples. Nice. I, this is just my third, so I've got some catching up to do. I only had uh, two divorces, and one was a known. It was the Hari Krishnas that were up on the campus at HSU. They yeah. like second or third marriage or something, like fourth maybe. But I knew they weren't going to last because she was like a kind of a netty freshman, eighteen-year-old girl, and he was like thirty-five-year-old uh, Hari Krishna. You know, guy went around the tambourine chant, and she joined up with him, and they got married. And six months later, they were broke apart. I'm sure it was a tumultuous six months. <laughs> <laughs> it was classic. Yeah, the guy was gnarly. I seen him one time swim out to uh, the Humboldt Harbor entrance and didn't even have a wetsuit on, and went out there and actually body surfed some huge, giant waves in the harbor mouth, which is a lot of people have called like California Pipeline or. It's a heavy break for sure. And to swim out there with no wetsuit and big surf is nuts. Yeah, you got to keep moving just to not freeze to death. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But he said he was, uh, it was the power of Krishna that kept him warm. It's the power of Krishna that keeps all of us warm. <laughs> <laughs> so what else did you have going on? You, I know you went to, oh, yeah, you went to Bigfoot and Brews. Oh, I did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Bolts and Brews is what it's called. Cindy Cadell's um, charity event over in Bend, Oregon. That was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Shane spoke, Shane Corson, and um, Shelly Montana spoke. Mark Marcel was there. I mean, a lot of the um, the local Oregonians were there. Gunnar Monson was there, you know, from Sasquatch Coffee. Ken Gerhart also spoke. It's always nice seeing him. He has a new Bigfoot book coming out. Um, it wasn't available for uh, – it didn't get off the presses in time to sell there, but I did pick up a number of his other books for the museum and kept a couple for myself because I hadn't read all of his books yet. Um, but I'm looking forward to the Bigfoot book. 
yeah, so that was a good event. I think the week before that, uh, my sense of time is a, is a little elastic, so I could be wrong about that. But I believe it was the week before that I was in Pocatello, Idaho. Dr. Meldrum and I did a, an event out there. Sasquatch Prince in the Park is what it was called. Uh, it was at Fort Hall. Remember that place we did the town yeah. hall meeting? So it was at Fort Hall, and uh, it was a Friday-Saturday event. Friday kind of sucked, though, because it rained. And so a lot of people stayed home and we we're supposed to be outside in the park because the weather is usually nice this time of year, but it wasn't. And um, so they, they didn't even have us out. Well, thankfully, they didn't have us outside. They put us inside buildings, but the only buildings available at this Fort Hall place was this old uh, Western sort of town that they had as a model, as kind of a museum sort of model. I was stationed alone inside of the saloon. <laughs> and, uh, and unfortunately, it was a dry saloon. There's actually no liquor in there at all. Um, so it was a long, long day. But the next day was actually pretty good. A lot of people came out. Uh, the weather turned for us. It was it was lovely. And it was, it was just a fun event in general. So I stayed over at Brandon Tennant's house, um, hung out with he and his family. And I, I hung out with Jeff kind of a lot, Jeff, uh, Dr. Meldrum a lot. Just kind of caught up with him and, you know. Poked his brain a bit for some questions I had. Oh, I picked up a new cast as well. Jeff uh, had a copy of the Skeena River cast oh, really? um, by Bob. Yeah, by Bob Titmus. And I'd never yeah. seen one of those out there anywhere. I've seen pictures of the originals, of course, and I've seen John Green's copies and all this other stuff. But I'd never seen them, you know, and held them, which is a big difference. It's one yeah. thing to see a cast in a, in a picture or in a book or something like that. But it's another to see it in person. So that was kind of cool. So I picked up one of those. Right on a scale of one to ten. I don't know, seven. Uh, and a lot of it is because of the historical reason. You know, like, it's a Titmus cast. But the right. thing, the Skeena River cast, there's a left and a right. I didn't get both. If I if I had both, I'd say they're eights. But I just got one of them. Um, and also, the Skeena River cast, uh, I, I believe there was a witness involved in it, but they didn't get there till later. Titmus didn't get there till later to cast it. So in the meantime, it had kind of filled in a bit with some sand, you know? So they're not very deep. There's not a lot of topography to the cast, but um, I do like the historical aspect to them. Cool. Whatever cast that I'm aware of that I don't have, that's pretty cool right there, you know? Right. Oh, I talked to some people in Denver that had six or seven casts. No, no yep. kidding. That's, that's a good start to a collection right there. Yeah, I got their card in my bag somewhere I got to go through. I got so many people's business cards I got to go through and catalog. Oh, six or seven original casts? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's even better. That's fantastic. Yeah, people, I brought I brought those uh, Orang Pendek couple tracks you gave me. Yeah. And people were really interested in those. I could go and ask, what's going on with that? Like, what do the experts say about it? I said, I don't know of any real experts that have actually, besides Sarmiento, that's really looked at them. Yeah, yeah. you know, um, some of them are real compelling. And, and now that I, I've taken a little bit of time to get into them, there are a percentage of fakes in there. There are some of them that are fake. You know, I would say about half of them probably are about are fake. Because unbeknownst to me, my contact out there was paying witnesses. Um, and I did not know that. I did not ask him to do that. And when I, when I found out it was happening, I had to stop. But um, it was too late. The damage had been done by then. I was just digging through those, actually, because I, um, I want to put some up in the museum, uh, you know, and make a little display out of them. And so I was digging through the Orang Pendex stuff. Some of the most compelling stuff that was gathered during that time period um, are represented by two track lines, both from 2014. And in both cases, we have multiple tracks from the same track line, like four or five, depending on the case. 
Right. And, and there's a vast difference between each individual print. And those are very compelling because uh, the other ones, there's not a there's not a difference between the prints that, that couldn't be explained, you know, than, you know, from sort of a little wooden device or whatever shoved in the ground. So those guys were uh, trying to pull one over on me, basically. But um, I think there are real ones mixed in, which sucks, man. That, that's kind of like the Ericsson project or some, one of those other things like there's good stuff mixed in with the bad stuff. Right. Um, so you kind of have to weigh each individual piece of evidence on its own merit. You know, it'd be easier if like, yeah, this is all good. You know, but uh, unfortunately, it's just another one of those cases that uh, greed or human, you know, fallibility basically entered into it and kind of screwed things up for us. Right, right. So you think about half and you have like 100 of them, don't you, from Sumatra? I'm guessing about 50, 50 or 60, maybe something like that. I think they're legit ring pendet casts in there. I really do. But to me, the most astounding things are the orang gadang prints. Because you have to search high and low through the Bigfoot literature to find an, even a reference to the orangutan. But yet, here we go. There, there actually have four, at least four, maybe six or eight footprint casts of that individual animal. Or they're not individual animal, but that species of animal. But, you know, it's hard to find any reference to them. But it turns out, you go back to the very beginning, and Ivan Sanderson referenced them. Yeah, I was reading that book two weeks ago. Yeah, and there's this other book as well, like In Search of the Orangutan or or something. But I, uh, that's it, I can't really say that's a great book. It's more of a naturalist um, account of his adventures, while keeping in mind that they, there might be something called the Orangutan out in the woods. And they're like six, seven foot, right? Uh, yeah, five, five or six. They're not actually that big, but for Indonesia, that's pretty big. I'm this giant in Indonesia, you know? Right. Maybe they all thought I was the Undertaker. Yeah, they're all walking. They're pointing at you, and they're asking me, "Is that the Undertaker?" Yeah. <laughs> and you see that yeah. guy? See a picture of him? It's like I do not look anything like that, dude. Yeah, apparently so. Apparently you do. You know. I got called him in Sumatra and Nepal. And Nepal, you're right. You're right. Also, they also called me the. They thought I was the Undertaker, which was I thought that was strange. Two different countries, and they thought the same thing. <laughs> well, you know, I, I guess all white people look the same. I don't think the uh, Undertaker would be too happy if you heard about that. <laughs> yeah, who's who's more bummed? You or the Undertaker? <laughs> oh, I was stoked, but he'd be pretty bummed. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. In uh, Sumatra, we were walking around the market. We're, we're walking around um, and uh, walking behind you, pointing at you. And I learned how to say white giant. <laughs> in Indonesian and they all loved it, man. They, they would ask me undertaker. And I said, no. And then I would say, you know, whatever white giant is and point to you. And they just laugh and laugh and laugh. Remember that, that dude, I bought, I bought the watermelon and ate it. And the guy that was carving it just had the gnarliest black underneath his nails. And he was digging the, his, cleaning his nails with the knife that he just, I didn't realize he got the watermelon with that. I, man, I ate some nasty stuff at that market. Oh, you know, hey, hey do me and um, all the listeners a favor, Bobo. Tell us about um, what led to your doctor's visit and then what happened there. The end of it all, of course, and I, I don't want to tell the punchline first because the whole story is funny, but I know that you had such a good experience at the Indonesian doctor that you actually bought a year a subscription or membership to the hospital because by your reasoning, it would be cheaper to fly to Indonesia to get um, medical attention than it would be to um, go to the American health system, the healthcare system. It was. It was like $23 to join for a year. Forget Kaiser. Forget Blue Cross, everybody. Go to Indonesia. It's cheaper. 
Well, I was in the fanciest hotel, and there was no screens in the windows. There's about 300 flies per person, no AC, hot, sweaty, people all over the place laying on the floor, stuff like that. It wasn't the top-notch care, but, yeah, I ended up going there because in Australia, we were screwing around on the beach, and Moneymaker threw that cheesy little uh, plastic boomerang tourist thing. He was throwing it, and I thought, it's only the episode. He chucks it, I'm thinking, like, no way it's kind of it's it can go anywhere on the beach because we were trying to we were trying to play catch with it and we could never get it anywhere near each other so when he just threw it up in the air of course it came right at me and i thought i can't jump i can't jump i can't move i'll, I'll just hold still if I, if I move it's gonna hit me if i hold still it'll miss plus you're on camera yeah like this was actually filmed at the time everybody can see this on the australia episode yeah and then what they can't see though is that the sound guy is yelling at me gramps because my uh, mic pack was in my back, was tucked into my waistband of my bathing suit. And he was just all, no, 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 your pack's falling out, your pack's falling out. And they're like 1500 bucks. He's like, don't jump, don't move. I tried not to jump. Then, then I just had a full brain fart when it was coming at me. I go, I can't believe it's going to hit me. And I just didn't barely even move. And it, so that little plastic thing hit me, split up my skin, chipped the bone, cut a tendon, and then got infected. <laughs> Yeah, that was kind of the beginning of a long, dramatic uh, ailment that you had to suffer with for a long time. Yeah, and then and then it turned out I picked up a um, fungus that was on top of the staph infection. So like they couldn't. They, that's what. That's what. It, for two. Remember, for two years, I had that wound on my leg. Yeah, and it moved legs too. I got the um, leech bites. It transferred through, and I was sleeping at night. They would rub together, and then it transferred over to the other leg. And yeah, but I still got a gnarly, I got a huge scar on my shin from that. It's gnarly. Like it's all dark purple, like thrash looking. It's, it's gnarly. Yeah. You'll never get, you'll never be seen in a bikini again with that wound. <laughs> no. So you were in Indonesia and, and it got bad enough that you actually had to go to the hospital at one point, not by your own choice. If I remember right, I believe it was Chad Hamill or a producer that kind of forced you to go. Yeah, they made me go. But it was cool. Yeah, but, I had a good yeah, day. Yeah, it was a great experience, right? It was, it was a great story. So when you got there, what was it like? What did you see? What happened? Um, well, I had – I can't remember which guy was with me, but I had a translator. And it was cool because um, we did get uh, two Orang Pendek sighting stories. They, but you know those Indonesians are – besides uh, Paka Ensign, a lot of them weren't too descriptive. They just say, yeah, I saw one. Because we were, I was asking everyone, like, who's seen – because everyone was staring at me. And we were there was probably 300 people in this giant room. And I said, "Who's seen a ring pen deck?" Or anyone anyone know someone that's seen one? And two people came over and said, "Yeah, we saw one," or whatever. Like their uncle had seen one, or their father had seen one, something like that. And they were like, "Oh yeah, they're there." Because there a lot of them. We were in the at that point. We were back in the city. Like, uh, where was that? Padang. Yeah, that's that sounds familiar. I think that's right. Yeah. So there were, there were a lot of city people in there, you know, that didn't live out in the mountains, but there were, you know, some mountain people out there and they were, um, they were, they were just kind of, that's where I got asked 500 times if I was the undertaker. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't get too well, you know there. what? It, it, it is the Indonesian, um, healthcare system. Maybe they were talking about a different kind of undertaker. Right. Oh man. <laughs> it was bad. Yeah. And this is when. You had a lot of weight on at this time, too. I remember the story where, uh, you know, it's the start of the physical. They're taking vitals and stuff. And then you had to step on the scale. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, mind you, Indonesians in general are a small people. Like over, I'm five foot eight, you know, and I I'm much taller than the vast majority of people over there. Um, so you are you're six four at this point, you know, like with boots on, and 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 you you had to be two seventy, two eighty at that point. Oh, no. I think you're pretty. You're big at that point, weren't you? It went up to 280, and it shot off the end of the 280, and the needles got stuck. And like, <laughs> it broke. It broke. I actually broke the scale, and that got the whole. It was spread like wildfire. Like there were like the nurses and the doctors came out to look, and everyone and all the people in the like it was like a, everyone was talking like, oh, Undertaker broke the scale. They, they thought it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, and it's good. They gave you uh, antibiotics or something like that, and then you know you still had the thing for like another year or two afterwards. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because then I got that's why I got extra fat. Was I could because uh, every time I because of that fungus that was on it, every time I sweat, things spread because it was like a staff mixed with like underneath a fungus. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I was at my friend's Christmas party, so I actually had that wound for twenty seven months and i was wow. at a christmas party because they were talking about like going to take it off of it and they're they're worried about like, they had to amputate it because it was so now so gnarly it got dead dead meat in there and all this stuff and they're like man you could lose this thing and i was at this christmas party and this old nurse she was in the peace corps in the 60s she's like oh she, my friends all like, hey take a look at this i'm like no i've already seen like specialists all over the country and all over the world <laughs> You know, it's yeah. and she looks at it, she goes, well, let me take a look. She goes, I know exactly what that is. That's not, that's that's a fungus. It's a tropical fungus. When she was in the Peace Corps, she treated it a bunch of times. She said, this is what you need to, you'll have to order it, but this is what you need. It's just a cream. So I went to the doctor. The doctor said, no, it's not that. I said, dude, you've been treating me for two years. It's still there. She said, this is what it is, and for me to try it. So just or, humor me and order the order it. So you ordered it, 10, 12 days later, that whole thing was gone. Okay. Yeah, you know, our doctors are not equipped to deal with stuff like that. You kind of have to go to specialists like tropical doctors once you come back if you pick up something. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I can't blame the guy. I mean, he's up here in, you know, semi-temperate rainforest, not a tropical jungle. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's he probably never, has never seen anything like it. No, no one did. None of the doctors I saw had seen it. But yeah, that was, that was good times when I broke the scale. <laughs> Hamill, Hamill loved it. He was dying. <laughs> oh, so many good stories about going overseas. Remember when you got your shot for going overseas? All those uh, inoculations or whatever we had to do. And um, I, you probably don't remember it as well as I do. But we were all in the waiting room, and you had to go in there and get a shot. And you don't like needles. I don't like needles either. But um, but when when you yelped inside there, you should have seen Hamill's face. He he died laughing right then. It's like he went oh. And he just went, oh, my gosh, and started laughing and laughing and laughing for quite a while, man, because uh, such a small noise coming out of such a large man about such a small needle. Well, dude, um, what's yeah, just set him off. And the nurse, she called me a pussy. She goes, you're such a pussy. And she took the needle and she grabbed it like she's holding a hammer, like with the, <laughs> with the needle coming out the bottle. Like she's got her whole hand wrapped around the, the syringe. And she yeah. – jams it in my arm like she stabbed me like <laughs> she like stabbed me i was that's why i, I was like ah like i couldn't <laughs> you know. 
Sorry. And I came out. I, came, I remember. I, I remember. I came out before she was done doing all my shots. I came out and said, "Quit laughing out here." I was all mad. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was pretty cute. <laughs> and you know what? Honestly, dude, you're kind of being a pussy. A little bit. A little bit. But um, yeah. Speaking of Hamilton, highly amused at things. Remember that time when um, we had a travel day? And it was. It, we had to leave early, and I I just wore my pajamas on the. Yeah. And we went into that truck stop in Wisconsin or somewhere, and I walked in and I said, oh, ice cream. All <laughs> <laughs> right. And Hamill was behind me. He goes, you can't have any ice cream now. You have to wait till later. And I was like, oh, man. When Hamill went up to pay, she goes, she referred to me as mentally challenged and thought he was my handler. Like, Well, yeah, they thought they thought you were disabled, you know, a, spe- a special needs man, you know, yeah. <laughs> because of the way you were dressed and, and your, your, and your joy at seeing ice cream. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was bad. Everyone uh, loved that one. Yeah. For, if you guys <laughs> ever saw the behind the scenes specials, which I still do not understand what they explained it one time, but I don't get it. They only aired them one time. Those behind the scenes specials, but Chad Howell, the executive producer or, the guy that made the show go would have been no show without him for sure. He was in heavily featured in those, even though he hated being on camera. <laughs> yeah. Those are by far my favorite episodes. Oh God. Yeah. And the final one, I really like that hundredth episode a lot too. Yeah, that was great. I mean, there's, there's some, some of them stand out more than others, but those behind the scene ones were, were kind of special because, you know, we see all our friends on camera instead of just us, you know? Yeah, those are my those are my favorites too. The people that saw them though, they all liked them too. Like, um, whenever I talk to people that see them, they're like, "How can they never show those? I love those." And I'm like, "I don't know. They just they had some reason why they didn't." I wonder if they're on the streaming service like Animal Planet Go, like the rest of the episodes are. I don't know. And then I just found out we're on um, Destination America on YouTube now too. Old Finding Bigfoots. Oh really? I didn't know that. With commercials. I just saw it by accident last night. Man, wouldn't it be great to get paid for that? <laughs> oh, my God. Everyone thinks we do. Yeah, we don't get anything. We, we got paid to make them, and all that is done. So, I mean, I encourage people to watch them. I think they're funny, you know, pretty decent episodes, like good, decent, you know, Bigfoot shows. But we're uh, pretty good Bigfoot shows in some cases, in some episodes. But, you know, we don't get anything from them. No. No. I wish because we were unscripted. Now, if we were scripted, like we we had scripts written, then we'd be getting residuals. We'd get royalties. Yeah, the Screen Actors Guild. And uh, if I remember right, I think that uh, it was that strike, the writer's strike from um, the Screen Actors Guild that actually gave birth to uh, reality TV to begin with. Exactly. Yep. That's what that's what really pushed it huge was, yeah, that was exactly what I said. I think we need writers. Well, we don't need writers. We'll just film weird people doing weird stuff. Yeah. Hence finding Bigfoot. Yeah. And a million other shows, of course. But that's what I was telling Wild Bill. I said, I'm like, dude, you know what? You guys might be able to, because if they give you guys, you know, like a story to follow for the show, you might be able to qualify as actors and get royalties and all that. And he said, we don't script a damn thing. That's just us talking. I said, all right. <laughs> Thought it could be, an angle, could be an angle you could take. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe it's a matter of pride, you know. Yeah. Did he call you a swinging dick again? Oh yeah. What's up, Bob? 
What's up, you big swinging dick? It's your friend Wild Bill here. <laughs> oh man, so um, Bill was telling me, or you know, Sir Wild Bill. You know, we should. I, I think I'm gonna refer to all those people as Sir. You know, like knights. <laughs> yeah, they, they they definitely deserve that. Uh, yeah, Sir Wild Sir uh, Wild Bill was telling me that he was helping you pack up your stuff on the last day of Cryptid Con. Yeah, that must have just been pandemonium in your room. No, he was great, man. I had so much stuff. I had to pack all my. All, we didn't sell that much merch, and I brought way too much stuff, and it was all scattered. Over. You know, you, my room looks like a bomb went off every time I get in the hotel. Yeah, it's like the FBI like went through rifling through looking for something every time I see your room. Yeah, so Wild Bill just came in like a tornado, dude. He's like, what do you need, buddy? And I said, well, this, this, and that, and that. And, dude, he just was like a tornado in reverse. I mean, like, instead of destroying, it was all, he just would fold stuff real quick, pack it really fast. Like he, and He's like 60-something years old, 61 or something, 62, I think. And I was like, this guy's got so much freaking energy. And he's still so like light on his feet and agile, and I was I was pretty impressed. It's that military training. Yeah, yeah, he is he is military through and through. You know, for whatever uh, you know clownish antics the producers may set him up for on the show, he's legit military. He was a nom the whole nine, man. Yeah, yeah, he is he is definitely the real deal. He stands like he's at attention all the time. Yeah. Oh, Cliff, have you had anyone uh, come in? That's what I wanted to ask you. Have you had anyone come in the museum with any good sightings in your area recently? Not sightings in my area. Well, I take that back. Um, there was one guy, a real quiet guy, this motorcycle rider, just this, uh, yes, yesterday. Yeah. Um, and he came in and, um, you know, he talked to me for about an hour. Didn't buy anything, but um, he, he's going to come back and get Krantz's book because he was familiar with uh, Meldrum's, but not Krantz's. And, you know, Krantz is a much must reads, but. He was telling me about some stuff that happened out there by um, Vernonia and Mist in that area. Jewel, that that, yeah. And uh, he he saw him when he was a kid, and he saw another one when he was twenty or something like that. And um, he's just one of those guys that, you know, his stories weren't spectacular, but he was so sincere about his bewilderments and like. There's a certain element of fear now that goes with it, and he's not afraid of the woods, although he does. Um, He's a gun guy. You know, he actually worked for Colt for a number of years and um, oh, cool. he, 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 made, he made custom guns for like a lot of like, um, you know, Navy SEALs and people like that. And, you know, like Clackamas County Sheriff and things like that. And um, and he was asking me like, it's like, I'm not trying to kill one, but the, the I, I go out with a so-and-so gun. And, you know, I mean, people who listen, they know I'm not a gun guy. I've, I've got a couple firearms, but I'm not a gun guy. I can't rattle off, you know, this caliber or that caliber or whatever model and make or whatever. But um, I go, well, is that a big gun? He looks at me. He goes, yeah. I said, well, could it take down an elk? And then he goes, it could take down anything in North America. It's like, really? Like grizzly? I said, yeah. Polar bear? Yeah. He's like, look at me like I'm an idiot or something like that. But I, I kind of am, you know. And uh, he says, well, if I, if I see one of these these things and you know i'm threatened or whatever and you know basically i'm not going to try to kill one but if it happens what do i do it's like oh well this is interesting because i'm not you know gonna, <laughs> i'm not going to try to help anybody kill one of these things you yeah. know i mean but like if, if he's you know if it happens i want to make sure that it's handled right and it's not bungled or another yet another lost opportunity I kind of went over what Krantz talked about in his books, you know, about his uh, 
you know, advice on that sort of thing. And I said, Hey man, well, it would be a shame to have happen, but you know, if it does happen, call me, I'll cover for you because, uh, he doesn't want his name anywhere. And he goes, well, you know, your name's going to be everywhere. I said, yeah, well, if we could put that off for a while, it'd be fine. I said, well, I, I can help you. I can put you in contact with the right people. And I gave him the advice, you know, take, cut off the biggest piece you could carry, um, uh, cut off a finger, hide it somewhere and don't tell anyone where it is, cut off another and then hide it somewhere and tell one person where that one is, you know, that sort of stuff, just in case those, all those men in black stories or, you know, if there's any inkling of truth in it or something like that, or the logging interests, you know, send people after you or something like that. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I kind of went over it, you know, or whatever, but I, th- I thought that guy was kind of interesting. Um, he, he, he spoke to me in a different way. And, and, and you know what it is, is because the way our living is, you know, um, working at a table and people come up and they're often looking for validation or, um, like what is it that I saw or what is it that you think about my story? And, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, stories are cool and they're important and they mean a lot to the people who they happen to, but, you know, understandably they mean less to those that it didn't happen to. Um, and, most stories end up being something along the lines of here's this kind of ambiguous thing that happened to people you don't know at a place you've never been. What do you think? It's like, well, I think it's interesting and I think maybe something happened, you know? Um, but he kind of presented things in a different way and I kind of appreciated that about him. Not that I don't like the other ones, of course, but no, but you know, here's another thing that happened that, uh, I think this was about two weeks ago. Some guy was in, um, this older gentleman, I mean, he's older than me. It wasn't an older guy. He's probably like 55 or 60 or something. He started talking to me about handprints because I have this, you know, touch table, a touch tank is what I call it, like an aquarium. Um, yeah. I, I have this table full of casts that people are allowed to pick up and look at. And, um, and he was tripping out on the hand casts that I had out there. And he goes, oh, you know what? My aunt, you know, uh, she ended up having this big muddy handprint in the side of her house. Like, oh, that's interesting. And starts talking more and more about the situation. I learned that it was the early 60s and this lady lived in Fort Bragg, California. And then all these alarms started going out. So wait no a minute. Way. Like John Is Reed it this? Is, yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. That, and it turns out that's his aunt. The, the very, very first known documentation of any Sasquatch handprint happened on his aunt's house in Fort Bragg in 1962. Absolutely. And I went, no. And then uh, he, and, uh, and I said, well, you know what? There's a, there's a, a drawing out there, um, that somebody did, a, a, you know, a, a, a tracing basically on the side of the house. And then somebody else later redid it for and John Green has that copy. I said, help me track down the original. And so he goes, I'll, I'll do my best. You know? So we called his aunt who's very, very old now, apparently. And they got a name, but we already knew the name of the artist. Um, there was an artist from Ashland, Oregon that uh, um, came down, I guess, um, it, either an art student or an art teacher. He's not sure which. And I forget the name off the top of my head, but I have it written down. Um, so that guy came in and he called me back twice now saying that, yo, I talked to my aunt and, you know, I, I found out this little bit of information. I found out that, and, you know, so he was that was kind of cool. But just to make the connection there, it was like a, another little piece of history. Um coming back, circling back around. I think that's so neat. And so far with the museum, you know, I haven't got any super fresh leads, you know, like somebody saw one two days ago or anything yet. Um, but we've only been open two months to be fair, but those sort of, um, historical tidbits that just walk in the door 
and start talking to me and, and I, I piece it together and go, no way, that's this, you know, that's a 1962, you know, uh, Fort Bragg handprint, you know, those are the coolest things um, that have come forth from the museum so far. Because, you know, like you, Bobo, I'm a student of Bigfoot history and I just love all that stuff. By the way, and the exhibit halls open this weekend. So oh, really? by the time that, yeah, this weekend, that's, I barely made it home for the podcast today because I've been working my butt off every single day, um, really since the middle of July. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining, but outside of this past weekend where I got to marry my friends, um, perform the ceremony for my friends, I've had a day and a half off since the middle of July because every other day has been spent on the museum working my ass off to get this thing done. And the exhibit halls are finally going to open this Friday. Um, they're not going to be, they're not going to be, oh, it is exciting. Um, they're not going to be done because I'm not sure the museum's ever going to be done. Um, I want to keep improving it and stuff forever, but, uh, it's going to be good enough to open on Friday. So I'm pretty excited about that. Oh, congratulations. Thanks. It's been a long time coming. Oh, and also on Saturday, not that it matters because this is going to come out after Saturday, but, um, Rob Alley is going to come in the store and do a book signing for his brand new book. Um, Rob has finally pinned another book. It's called Bigfoot in Southeast Alaska. Um, and read he also it. has a, was that? I already read it. Oh, you did? I got a copy from him. We're at the, uh, mile high conference. Oh, he was there. I forgot about that. Yeah. I, I have not put my nose in the book yet. what did you think of it? Uh, it's good. It's just, you know, it's a collection of stories and a few of his like insights to what's going on with the, that area. And it's cool. It's, it's, it's real similar to Raincoast Sasquatch. Oh, good. Cause I, I love that book. Yeah. Now what a lot of people don't realize about, um, Raincoast, uh, Raincoast Sasquatch is that I think three of the sighting reports that he details in there are actually his own. That's right. It's either, I think it's three, maybe it's two, but I know it's more than one. Yeah. So, um, several, a couple or several of those sighting reports in Raincoast are actually stories about his own sighting, um, of a Sasquatch, which I think is kind of neat. Yeah, it is cool. But anyway, yeah, that's going on this weekend. So Rob's going to be, uh, Dr. Alley is going to be in the, um, the shop, um, on opening weekend for the exhibit halls and stuff, hanging out. So Dude, he's the perfect guy to interact with uh bigfoot fans because he has unlimited energy unlimited unlimited stories and just he likes to engage and talk squatch oh yeah he is definitely a talker and he there's nothing he loves to talk more about than bigfoot yeah. he just cannot get enough of hearing people's stories and sharing his own uh he's a really neat guy he's he, like he's had a bundle of energy He's, he's going to be good to have at the shop. I'm looking forward to the weekend. It's going to be a good one. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, I wish I could. Man, if I, well, I'm going to be gone the next two weeks. But I would, yeah, I'm going to be gone the next two weeks. But I was planning on trying to make it whenever the opening was. But I can't make it now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and everything goes right. Um, you know the, what is it called? The, that Ocean Shores event. The Sasquatch Symposium. Is that right? Uh, I think that's what it's called. Yeah, well, the Ocean Shores gig, you know, it's usually like in middle-ish, yeah. late November or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, I was talking to Brandon Tennant today, or yesterday. I always get today and yesterday confused. But <laughs> um, Dr. Doctor Meldrum is going to be coming out with Brandon, you know, because Brandon said it's selling T-shirts through SasquatchPrints.com. And Meldrum, I believe, is a speaker at, okay. the, um, at the event. 
um, they're talking about coming out a day early and coming to the museum, in which case I will be scheduling a book signing with Dr. Meldrum and maybe even a, a lecture thing with, with Jeff. Um, because in the same parking lot um, area as the museum, as the North American Bigfoot Center, is a pizza place called Nuts on Sports Pizza. Um, and they have an upstairs room that holds about 50 people with a big screen TV and whatnot. And um, I have access to use that room for special events if I choose to. So uh, if, if everything goes right and, the, and Brandon can, can get the time off and Dr. Meldrum can get the time off and the schedules work out, um, I'm going to be having a special event with Dr. Meldrum there um, a few days before the Sasquatch Symposium. Um, and it is special because it's only 50 people. So, uh, you know, keep your eyes open or your ears open about that one. Or you can just go to the website and join our mailing list and you can hear about it. So That's awesome. I hope that works out. Yeah, I think it's going to be great. Um, I'm hoping to do something like this about once a month, you know, at least for the winter months. You know, during summer might be a little bit too busy, but during the um, winter months, there's not much going on. So I figured, you know, if I, I've got about six or eight presentations I can give and people like, you know, traveling Bigfoot royalty like Dr. Meldrum can come on through and fill a night or something. It might be something that people would enjoy uh, listening to. Oh, for sure. As long as they find out about it, that's the problem is getting the word out. Yeah, well, getting the word out, um, it may not be too tough because we've had this sign-up list um, on the on the counter in the museum since we opened, and I think we have nine or ten pages full of email addresses, et cetera, to be added to the mailing list, which I put my employee on. And um, when we went, when I went to the uh, online, you know, mailing list thing, I think it's called Mailchimp or something like that. Um, we already had twelve or fifteen hundred people on it. And that's that's without those ten or ten or twelve pages of uh, other people signing up too. So, and we only have fifty seats available. So, it, you know, this is going to be a first come first serve, um, highly in demand sort of thing, I believe. But maybe uh, I'm wrong. We'll see. Oh, it will be. Yeah, I hope so. What are you guys fun to do? Like, five bucks to your talk. Yeah, I'm not sure what it would be. Yeah, five or ten bucks, or I don't know. What it would. Whatever the market uh, can allow, I suppose, you know, it be because great. I got to pay, I, I got to pay the speaker, right? Dude, it's got, it should cost more than a freaking movie ticket. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll, we'll see because um, if, if once I do one or two of these things, I'll kind of have an idea, you know, if it sells out in 20 minutes, well then clearly I have to charge a little bit more, you know, but. Right. You know what? I still, I know I've said this a billion times, but. Every time at these events with Jeff Meldrum, Dr. Meldrum, I just look and go, this guy's probably going to get a Nobel Prize someday, and he's going to be lauded. You know, he's going to be the, the genius that toiled in scorn and anonymity and, you know, the whole deal. And he'll be, he'll be I think he'll definitely be validated and all that. And I, I just laugh at he's like sitting next to me at a booth <laughs> selling T-shirts. <laughs> Yeah, it's selling T-shirts. Yeah, like selling necklaces and talking about Star Trek, right? Yeah. Did you know that Jeff's a total Trekkie? Yeah. Yeah, total Trekkie. I was, I was so. I mean, I'm, I'm I, I lean towards Star Wars myself, but you know, I, I'm fluent in Star Trek. Um, but uh, when we were out on expedition, you know, for those days over at the Blueberry Bog, yeah, you know, he would say, "Oh, it's like that season, you know, season two Star Trek episode with so and so." Dude, you're like calling out the seasons, man. Like you're a Trekkie. <laughs> That's exceptionally nerdy. Well, yeah, yeah, it's Jeff though. 
still got to bust his balls a little. Yeah. And he's, he's so open to that because, you know, people don't, who don't know him, he, he does use, you know, multi syllable words and he's very academic and very professional and dead, dead sober. And yeah, he's, he's a lot of things that, you know, most of my circle isn't, um, but man, he, he can roll with anybody. He's rad. He's loose. He's so loose and funny and smart and cool. And yeah, he's rad. Love that guy. He is. He's an exceptional person. Yeah, he does the same presentation all year. That's what he got me doing. It's smart. It's smart because I can't keep track of what I've done where anymore. I have, and I tried to mix it. I was trying to mix it up, and it got so stressful trying to come up with something new every time. And I'm not a scientist. like I have new findings I can talk about or whatever, and I suck on the computer trying to put stuff together. So it's – and there was like, dude, just do the same one for a year. And I was like, that's what I do, and – People complain a little bit, but I was like, you know, I could sit through his twice because I know I forget so much. If I don't see it for six months or even three months or even a month, I'm just, it'll be ingrained that much more if I see him twice, you know? Yeah, you know, at the um, Pocatello event a few weeks ago, Jeff and I, we both did two. We did one on Friday and we did another one on Saturday. And so I got to, you know, dust off two of them. So Jeff did this year's presentation, which is, you know, Bigfoot and Bears. And then he did last year's as well, which is uh, um, the one where he compares Paranthropus to um, Sasquatches. I love uh, that. And I, oh, uh, fantastic. I've seen that one, I think, four times now. I watched both of them, even though I'd seen both of them before, and I still picked up new s- stuff from them. Yeah, exactly. Mine's about puking in Nepal and playing with monkey. <laughs> well, we all have our strengths, Bobes. <laughs> don't, don't, don't discount yours. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome, man. Welcome. I'm here to prop you up. Okay, folks, that wraps up another edition of Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. And if you enjoy what you hear, please share, spread the word. We're looking to get some more viewers, listeners. We also are on YouTube. You can check us out there, Bigfoot and Beyond. Uh, There'll be photos to some of the stuff we spoke about. We're picking up a lot of viewers on that. People are enjoying that. And until the next time we get together, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. Thank you.